0: Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal. So, we hope you enjoyed last week's episode, which was a guest episode from the International Marxist Radio, the brand new podcast of the International Marxist Tendency. There are now two more new episodes on the International Marxist Radio, one on the Spanish conquest of the Americas and another on the situation in Peru. Um, So if you'd like to check that out, then follow the link in the show notes of this podcast uh, to find out more. But on this podcast, Marxist Voice, uh, we are returning to our regular schedule of weekly theoretical and historical talks. Um, So this week, we're going to have an episode on globalization and whether it is reaching its limits. 20 years ago, the ruling class confidently proclaimed the era of globalization. According to them, free trade and deregulation would lead to a new epoch of prosperity. But after more than a decade of economic crisis, things have turned to their opposite. Instead of free trade, we have trade wars and protectionism, and imperialist tensions are growing by the day. So in this talk, Nicholas Albin Svensson from the editorial board of Marxist.com will be discussing the reasons behind this decline in world trade, what this means for the world economy, and what attitude we should take as Marxists towards it. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Marxist Voice, brought to you by Socialist Appeal.
1: Um, I've I've been given one of these titles uh, with a question mark, um, but really there's only one answer to this question, and everyone knows the answer to this question already before we start, so hardly going to bother to answer it. Um, But the question is, is this the end of globalization, and uh, the answer is, uh, I would say, no, Uh, and there's not really any doubt about that. I think what we need to do today, or in this session, instead is to try to understand uh, why there is an end to globalization and what this means. That's more the interesting parts of the discussion. Um, and also maybe we should start by trying to define our terms. Uh, and in this, uh, I will be using term globalization. Um, I think that's the reason why it was put on the agenda, is to denote a very specific thing. Uh, not internet, uh, not uh, travel uh, to Costa Rica to go on holiday uh, or anything of that sort uh, or you know, go studying in uh, the US uh, or uh, something like that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, although it's related in a way, uh, but what we're talking about specifically here is when we talk about globalization, we mean free trade, the expansion of world trade, the expansion of the world market those specific things we talk about. When we talk about the end of globalization, we talk about the end of these periods of the expansion of world trade and the world market, and free trade specifically. Um, And the opposite of globalization, therefore, is protectionism Um, and its various forms. There are many different forms that come in, but the general thrust of it is to try to put up barriers uh, Two entry of inter- of the internet on the world market, but barriers to the world market to protect your own national market, your own national companies and so on, to try to defend them from competition abroad. And as Marxists, we have to understand this process uh, not as isolated policies, as in do we now uh, 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 introduce a tariff, do we not introduce a tariff, do we give some subsidies to our industry, do we not give some subsidies to industries? These are individual policies, but that's not how we have to understand this thing. It's not a question of choice between one thing or another that the, uh, that the government faces. It's uh, We have to understand it as a process. right? We have to understand free trade and protectionism as part of a process of the development of capitalism, or the lack of development of capitalism uh, more specifically. Uh, in a sense, it's uh, similar to the discussion that happened between uh, Kautsky, who you, who you know that is, is, and Lenin, who you probably do know who he is, on the question of imperialism. Well, Kautsky talked about imperialism as a policy of the ruling class, whereas Lenin refused to talk about those terms. So that's wrong to understand uh, uh, imperialism as a policy. Imperialism is part of a process, it's part of, the. we call it the highest stage of capitalism. And in a similar way, we have to understand. Uh, free trade, opening up free trade, and all its opposite, protectionism, as part of the process of capitalist development. It's actually very close linked as well to the development of imperialism. Um, I remember back in the early 2000s, and the chair has already alluded to this, globalization and free trade was all the rage. Uh, all the liberals and conservatives, uh, young people, were very enthusiastic about all the wealth and prosperity that a globalization and free trade were we're going to bring to the world. Uh, they studied Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and like it was the bible, and uh, they thought it was the most profound thing ever written. And of course they had a point, like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is a very important work of economic theory, and it actually describes one particular aspect of the world, and the developers of capitalism very well. It was then expanded upon, his theories were expanded upon by a person called David Ricardo, another British economist, and both of them actually thought laid on the foundation of Marxist economics are in those two writers. So Marx didn't really have an objections to what they were saying. Uh, both of them were part of developing the labor theory of value that Marx uh, finalized in his writings. Um, World trade has this thing, it has transformed the world to a better place. It was part of the development of capitalism, or in Marxist terms, part of the development of the productive forces, part of the development of machinery, new technology and its application in production that enable us to produce things in a much more efficient way, much less labour involved in each little product that we produce. For example, a very good example is back in the 1940s, a pen, like we're talking about pen, not pencils. These used to be a luxury item that were only afforded by a very, very few not, not people, very expensive items. Um, whereas today, you can get one of these for, uh, I don't know how many you would get for a pound, but quite a them for a pound. Right? They're not luxury. And that is because of the development of productive forces. And as part of that, One of the necessary components of this massive development of productive forces was the development of world trade. On a very banal level, how could we possibly produce mobile phones uh, or lithium batteries, which are in mobile phones or laptops or the the new electric cars? How can we do that without the uh, cobalt and the nickel that is produced in other parts of the world? You cannot dig this out of the ground in Britain, you have to get it from other parts of the world. But more importantly is that you concentrate production, concentrate production in specific countries and specific factories around the world, and this massively improves efficiency. Right? If you have if I have to produce things in 2000 factories around the world, each one will be relatively small and not be able to produce things very efficiently. You have to have small machines and so on. Big factories tend to be much the uh, have, can have house bigger machines and therefore produce things much more efficiently with much less labor time, much less uh, effort being put in, or time being put in uh, by each worker. And that's the whole point. The cheapening of raw materials is also done by producing in those countries where it's easier to get hold of them. So, for example, it doesn't make so much sense to dig. Oil out of uh, from shale uh, oil production in the United States, which costs sixty dollars a barrel to produce, when you can dig it out of the ground in Saudi Arabia for five dollars per barrel, right? In, in a sort of completely free, uh, in the situation of completely free trade, you wouldn't be doing that. Now, obviously, there are other elements that come into the equation, which is why you have shale oil in the United States, but nonetheless, you can see the difference there. The point is that in certain parts of the world, you can dig these raw materials out of the ground a lot more easily than in other parts. That's part of it. Um, And Adam Smith explained that uh, in his writing. Also then was elaborated by David Carter, who adjusted some (coughs) of these theories. Um, So those are the two sides, the cheapness of certain parts of the world in extracting raw materials, and the other part is the economies of scale. You can also have things like access to transport networks. So right now, electronics is very good to produce in in uh, around the South China Sea because all the other parts of the supply chain are located there. So if you want to produce, for example, LED screens, uh, the screens for laptops and mobile phones and so on, it makes sense to produce it in that part of the world because you don't have to ship all the components they need for the screen all across the world in order to. Uh, uh, we haven't had production, and why it makes very little sense, which Trump tried to do, to build a factory for production of screens in Michigan because it's nowhere near where the other components are being produced, but they might still do it uh, because of production. So world trade massively cheapens commodities, that's the point, uh, and it frees up labor for other things, right, to so produce even more commodities of different types uh, or to, for example, put into the service sector, uh, health care and the like, which have massively expanded as a part of the economy, particularly in the West, right? So you look at the number of workers employed in the industry in uh, the West. Uh, uh, they are far fewer as a proportion of the population, but they're producing far, far more than they did 50 years ago. And more service sector, like healthcare, uh, social care and so on, is taking up a bigger share. Workforce, and that's quite. We actually would like it that way, I think. We would like to spend more money on, on making sure that rather than us uh, or taking care of each other, we couldn't. I, I'm not very fond of the idea of putting a machine to take care of our elderly or a robot and prepare that to be done by humans, whereas I don't have a problem with a robot producing my mobile phone, if you understand what I'm getting at. Now, the whole uh period after the World War II, saw a massive expansion of world trade, um, starting in the 1950s and the 1960s, but even more so after that, actually. Uh, In 1970, the ratio of world trade to GDP, so you take the the amount of world trade, or the value of world trade, and you compare it to the size of the world economy, so the world trade was 13% of GDP, so approximately one-eighth of all Production was meant for export. Um, and uh, by 1980, this had uh, reached 21%. <coughs> then, in the 1990s, there was another burst of growth and it hit 24% by 2000. No, sorry. Uh, at the end of the 1990s, it had reached 24%. And it, before the crisis of 2008, it had reached 31%. So, almost one in every three goods or services were produced for the world market. I suspect the proportion of goods produced for the world market is higher and services a bit smaller, but regardless. You can see the development there of the world trade, right? So the world trade for much, much bigger proportion of total economy in the world. And that is precisely the phenomenon which we describe as globalization. Alongside this kind of economic development, and which obviously helped facilitate this economic development came the political or diplomatic development, which was the various agreements around free trade. So we have the general agreements on a uh, general agreement on tariffs and trade, or GATT, which was signed in 1947 by <coughs> well by 1949, 20 countries were involved in general agreement on tariffs and trade. Um, and this was followed by a number of other agreements to reduce tariff barriers. Uh, uh, particularly then, we're talking about the West, so between uh, Britain and France and the United States. Um, and so on, other European countries. Um, this was, there were multiple more agreements in the 1950s and 1960s. The membership, the number of countries involved in the, in the GATT agreement, Agreements, so it went from 20 in 1949 to 37 in 1959 to 75 in ni- by 1968, and but well, by the time when GATT uh, was uh, absorbed into the new World Trade Organization, that's 1994, it's 128 countries, and uh, that's not half of the world, but, uh, but that's that's. That is half of the world's countries, but I suspect I don't have the population statistics, but I suspect that it's a far bigger share of the world population uh, than than the world economy, but is particularly um, that was then covered by this general agreement of Paris and Trade. They also then in nineteen ninety-four replaced, or rather, they put they added a number of agreements to the GATT agreement. Um, for example, the added one with services, one on government procurement, the government purchases, and for the WTO. That was also included dispute resolution mechanism, which you might have heard about, where countries or companies can take other countries to court for their particular measures and so on. It never worked particularly well, but we produced a document. I wasn't around at the time, but uh, yeah. <laughs> nonetheless, I found a document in our archives or on our website. Um, explains this process. The fact that we have entered an entirely new situation on a world scale is shown by the changed role of world trade. The massive development of world trade in the period 1948 to 1973 was one of the main reasons for the post-war upswing in world capitalism. <laughs> this enabled capitalism, partially and for a temporary period, to overcome the main barriers to the development of the productive forces that is, the nation-state and private property. Now, this introduces an interesting question here. What role does the nation-state play in all of this? So I'm going to delve into this question a little bit. Um, now, when capitalism first emerges out of feudalism, uh, it emerges as a national market. So capital, one of the, uh, the tasks of the bourgeois revolution is the creation of the national market. Before that, you have lots of local regional markets, uh, which are controlled often by feudal lords and so on. There can even be tariffs, and this was the case in Germany, famously. They put tariffs between different parts of Germany, so you travel from one town to the next, and you will have to pay a tariff just to travel between those two things. So obviously the first task that capitalism set, or the bourgeois set themselves, is to abolish all these barriers within one nation. So to create a national market, that was the, to themselves. And this overcame uh, the regional feudal limitations uh, to the development of the productive force. So you can develop productive forces then within a national framework. But What this means also is that we can eventually get a national price for a product, i.e. a product costs a certain amount of things to buy because there's a national market, so it has to harmonize the prices in different parts of the country. And you get this kind of free-flowing trade between these different parts where you buy parts from different parts of the country in order, uh, and all the different producers in different parts of the country compete against each other. This is the national market. But as capitalism develops the productive forces, machinery, the factories grow bigger and so on, uh, competition gives way to monopoly. So you have, from having a large number of smaller producers. They increase to go bigger and bigger by eating up their competition or defeating them, uh, making them bankrupt. Uh, and the, the companies go bigger and bigger, and this goes hand in hand with the development of the production of the machinery, right? So bigger and bigger machinery costs more and more money, therefore makes it harder and harder for smaller, less capitalized companies uh, to uh, compete, and also for new entrants. So if you want to start... Uh, and, uh, a new company in the mid 19th century, or uh, to produce uh, textiles, you do not—it's not enough anymore to buy some hand looms. You know, looms you use your hand. I don't know exactly know what they look like, but you know what I mean. Um, but you now have to buy—not you have to buy power looms, like a big machine, and a steam engine as well to drive and run the machine. So this obviously means that the barrier for an entry is much bigger. So you, this is basically a monopoly that has been created. Here you have the beginnings of international trade on a capitalist basis. Um, but it's not just the uh, export of your products, your uh, commodities, which is the first stage of things. But then eventually also the export of the machinery, the ex- investments brought. That's one of the. Developments that take place later on in the 19th century. Not only rather than uh, exporting the, your commodities to another country, you start investing in a factory in that other country and producing the things there because it's cheaper than to produce in the country where it started off from. So you have the, or um, maybe more to the point, you lend money. So you put them to give the money to the bank, and the bank in turn will lend money to some company abroad to set up a factory somewhere. Uh, and this is part of you have the process of uh, fi- development of finance capital. So all the big profits that are made by the monopolies in Britain wound up in the British banks. The British banks then start lending the money to Russia or other countries in order for them to build factories to make profits in these countries and then pay back in interest some of the profits that have been made in Russia or wherever it is so then, have you can see here the start of the world markets with commodities <coughs> and then eventually what have been capital or money uh, that is uh, expanding and being you know spreading across borders uh, and this stage when you start having the export of capital this is what Lenin then described as the higher stage of capitalism, or imperialism Um, And obviously, we haven't left that stage. We're still living in that stage of capitalism today. So in order for the productive forces developing each nation, they need to uh, then expand beyond the narrow limits of the national market. So at one point, they had to expand beyond the limits of the regional market, now need to expand beyond the limits of the national market. And this has important consequences. I'm returning again to this document from the 90s. The intensification of the international division of labor, the lowering of tariff barriers, and the growth of trade, particularly between the advanced com- capitalist countries, acted as an enormous stimulus for the economies of the national states. This was in complete contrast to the dismemberment of the world economy in the period between the wars, when protectionism and competitive devaluations helped to turn the slump into the world dis- depression. So, the upswing of the post-war period was both the cause and the effect of development of world trade. We have to remember with dialectics, right, you, often the cause is an effect and the effect is a cause. You have the uh, uh, upward spiral, that would call it, with the optimistic language, upgoing spiral. And though, so if that is the question of free trade or all the advantages of free trade and the, the, why the free trade exists, why the world market is created, then you have the opposite side, protectionism. And what is um, the logic of protectionism? Um, By the mid 19th century, British industries reigned supreme on the world market. Uh, Using cheap commodities, British industries uh, conquered the world. They knocked out the entire textile industry in India, with big consequences, but also in all other parts of the world. The cheap commodities that the British industries were able to produce uh, basically uh, uh, changed the face of the earth. And this was the era of the British free trade. And this was reflected then in the domination in the British Parliament of the Whigs, the Whig party, or the, you could call them liberals, but, we, we, we call it, but it's more accurate to call them Whigs, because that was the name. And the repeal, famously, which studies British history, the repeal of the corn laws, which was agricultural tariffs which uh, protected British agriculture, but these were repealed uh, in this period. And this enabled the bosses to keep the wages of the British industry low, because cheap bread, cheap, cheap grain means cheap bread, um, and also that benefited them by then being able to export uh, all their manufactured goods all over the world. But this posed a problem for other nations, whose industries were not as efficient or as well-developed, and they needed some means of protecting their industries from these cheap British commodities. As Engels put it in 1881, uh, these other countries did not see the beauty of a system by which the momentary industrial advantages possessed by England, should be turned into means to secure to her the monopoly of manufactures all the world over and forever. So I e, it's a bit convoluted language, but basically the point being, the other countries didn't see the beauty of uh, the Britain just being able, by virtue of you know, the wonders of free trade, Adam Smith and so on, destroy all the industries in Germany, in Sweden and so on, and then reign supreme forever and ever. So they took measures to stop this. And in Sweden, for example, they introduced a system of re- export restrictions. So Bitcoin, you might know, think, why are you ex- restricting your exports? But the point is this. Uh, the in- British industry is sucking in raw material, iron ore, uh, wood, and so on. and um, But supplying Britain with increasing mo- uh, amounts of unprocessed, uh, raw materials would not help develop the Swedish industries, which is obviously the key to economic development. So they put barrier, they put restrictions on how much unprocessed raw materials w- were was allowed to export. They even banned a number of uh, uh, raw materials to be exported to force the develop- the processing of these, like the steel the making of the steel, the making of the uh, paper, the making of the boards, and so on forced that processing to take place in Sweden, and therefore they could then develop the Swedish industries. And when Swedish industry caught up by the mid to late 19th century, they then uh, lowered these restrictions and they were able to compete on par with the British industry. Similarly, they caught, caught in the uh, US Civil War, the south, uh, in the, or the sou- southern state, the Confederacy, they were advocates of free trade because they wanted to export cotton without restrictions to, to the um, cotton mills in Lancashire in England, um, whereas the North, where the industrial heart of the uh, United States was, they wanted to have res- uh, pro- protective barriers to protect themselves against these very same uh, British uh, industries. <coughs> so. Uh, this was part of the whole struggle in the Civil War, obviously, but, Well, the whole key question in the Civil War was the cotton trade, and linked to that the question of slavery. By the end of the 19th century, or rather the slavery linked to that the cotton trade, with the cart before the horse. By the end of the 19th century, British industries were no longer dominant, and this changed, they were facing increasingly stiff com- competition abroad, particularly from Germany and the United States. And now this changed politics in Britain, and you have to turn to the Tory party, conservatives as they're called today, Um, the Tory party who was then the advocates of protectionism, and they gained back power in the British Parliament towards the end of the 19th century. And in the British Empire, this played out in what was known as the Imperial Preference, whereby you would give preferential access to goods of Commodities that came from other parts of the British Empire. This was introduced in Australia and Canada and a number of other British colonies in this period Effectively thus barring the United States and at least restricting the uh, the access to these substantial markets Remember the British Empire was by far the biggest restricting the access for German and US industries to these markets so this was an important part then in why German industries, who had emerged uh, and have found the limits of the national market, German industries who now needed to export abroad, they needed to find markets for their goods abroad, but they had no colonies. And this comes then the idea which was formed in the German ruling class of the need to re-divide colonies in the world uh, between the different powers, and Germany, of course, getting a bigger share so that they would get a share of their uh, of the markets. Um yes. And this is all so this is also the period that we're talking about is when Lenin describes as imperialism the highest stage of capitalism, and when the world was divided between the imperialist nations. So actually, in the mid-19th century, there were less colonies than in 1820. So the number of colonies in the world is actually declining, all the way until about 1860, 1870, when then suddenly there's a massive increase, and the, uh, the British, and the French in particular, but also Germany a little bit later on, they start dividing up the whole world between themselves, in particular Africa. Um, and this also coincided then with the first tremors of the crisis that came where to come in the 1920s and 30s, well, yeah, 30s in particular. But the first tremors of that crisis came in the early 20th century, and you start having the limits of uh, capitalism, and the limits of the whole expansion of capitalism, was starting to be seen in this period, and this then uh, was the, found, the background to World War One. So the question of global economic crisis, uh, uh, imperialism and free trade and protectionism, those things are all very closely interrelated. And we should remember that war is only politics by other means, as Clausewitz said, and Trotsky added, well, or separately said, that politics is only concentrated economics. So, i.e., you have the uh, economics of the development of productive forces, development of industry, monopolization, the exhaustion of the world market, sorry, national market, the exhaustion of the world market, all of this has uh, political consequences uh, and eventually also military consequences. Um, the First World War, uh, or after the First World War, the First World War solved none of these problems, in fact, right, just exacerbated them. And uh, after this, they then developed like the real period, we say, protectionism. Adam Smith called protectionism called it beggar, beggaring all their neighbors." He called it, which then has been translated in modern times to "beggar their neighbor," uh, which means to turn your neighbors into beggars, right? So, your neighboring countries, uh, so your neighboring countries' workers into beggars. That's what it means. Um, and he was uh, describing with this phrase. He was describing the attempt to turn. Uh, to cure recession unemployment within your own country uh, by exporting it to other countries. And the way to do this is to shift uh, consumption from goods imported from abroad to goods that are imported uh, or produced domestically. Um, of course, in conditions of recession, or even more depression, these contradictions are massively exacerbated. So you have the problem of unemployment it's exacerbated, the exhaustion of the world market, domestic market, all these problems are massively exacerbated in a period of economic crisis. So in the middle of the Great Depression, the British introduced what they call the imperial preference, also in Britain, which meant that the British market was then uh, had restrictions from all over the rest of the world, with preference them from the colonies. Um, the 1933, President Hoover introduced an act called the Buy American Act, which forced government contractors to preference, um, and obviously government being probably the biggest uh, consumer in, in any country, forced government contractors to preference domestically produced goods. Quite a complicated thing, but uh, that's, uh, that's what this act did. And there were many other countries that enacted similar policies uh, in this period of time. Um, So this is the kind of similar scenario that we're facing today. 2007 and 2008 really put an end to the process of expansion of free trade. They had something called the uh, Doha Round of trade negotiations that were meant to uh, in, under, under the umbrella of the WTO, and these trade negotiations were meant to uh, remove agricultural tariffs or agricultural subsidies, uh, particularly in the US and Europe, and this was meant then to also then the what you call the developing world or the um, underdeveloped countries or whatever you want to call them, uh, former colonies, they were meant to then reduce some of their tariffs in response and so on. That was, that was the aim of this, what they call the Uruguay Round. But this, uh, uh, by two thousand seven, two thousand eight, this basically died. There's no serious attempt to revive it ever since. So this process of uh, ever decreasing tariffs and so on was brought to an end with the crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, Obama who was the president at that time. Uh, launched uh, the slogan "Buy American." Uh, some of you might remember that. He also, this by American Act of, of Hoover in 1933, actually remained on the statute books of the US all through this period, but it was undermined by various kinds of um, agreements they made. So these agreements, whether they the, under the guise of WTO or GATS, they all kind of um, undermine this act, they it reduce its effectiveness, and there were all kinds of limitations, sort with of power. But in his uh, in Obama's presidency, they basically beefed it up. So in his 2009 Recovery Act, so this was at the depth of the recession just after 2008, he uh, then beefed up this act again to give it more powers to basically force the government contractors again to uh, buy more American goods, uh, and he tried to do it even more in uh, his what he called the Jobs Act of 2011, but the Republicans stopped him. So there's a bit of a shame, uh, the guards there, but uh, he, he basically had plans to even further introduce more protectionist measures, but it was blocked. Trump, of course, as you know, was a big fan of protectionism, um, but he re- even the measures that he took were restrained by the rules of the WTO, which he borrowed. At least to some extent, followed. Um, But now, obviously, you have Biden coming in, and Biden is not, has, although revoked some of Trump's most extreme uh, or sort of most, we say, hair raising measures, the ones that affected Canada, Europe. (laughs) Obviously, Biden's policy is to try to be friends with Canada and Europe, uh, unlike his predecessor. But uh, his general approach is that not that of free trade. But he wants to modernize the rules of the WTO. Now modernizing the rules of the WTO, it's not lost on anyone what that means, that means weaken. So I basically give give national states more power to introduce protectionist measures. That's what he would like to do. Although the business press were, although they were generally depressed about this proposal of his, they said, well, at least he's in favor of rules-based international trade, even if he wants to weaken the rules. So the sort of um, expectations of politicians in this period is not that they would increase free trade, but rather that they would uh, not uh, introduce so many protectionist measures. That's their level of ambition. And behind this is two pressures. On the one hand, the crisis is threatening to ruin industries and jobs in the United States and in Europe and so on, which is why they then try to take measures to protect their own industries. It's also happening in China, uh, where the governments at various points have introduced measures that effectively dumped some of their surplus capacity onto the world market. Um, um, So they're all involved in this, basically, because uh, the the market is no longer expanding in the way that it was back in 2006. Um, And the other, so there's the economic crisis on the one hand, on the other hand, this last 30 years of economic development has produced a new world power. So China has had, in the last 30 years, since the the mid-1990s, has had 7 to 10% annual growth in labor productivity. So every year, a Chinese worker has become 70 to 10% more efficient, and there's no other place on the planet, practically, where this similar kind of development has taken place. In fact, in Britain, the productivity of the workers have been falling, not rising, um, over the last period. Um, and this means that the amount of uh, value that a Chinese worker produces has gone from $3.8 to $13.8 per hour, if you understand what that means. Still far below that of the West, but nonetheless, it's a massive increase. And this is the average as well. In some industries, this will be far higher. Falling labor costs through spending on capital means that China has now become one of the world's biggest industrial nations. But as I said, China still lags behind, and the IMF estimates that the average labor productivity in industry in China is 35% of that the global best practice. Now, I don't exactly know what global best practice means uh, in practical terms, but yeah, if they have like, an imaginary most productive scenario with, with present technologies and so on, uh, and China is at 35%. Now, I guess no one is at 100%, but Western countries would be uh, at a higher point, for sure. Only in the most advanced areas, like cities around the Pearl River estuary, Shanghai or Beijing, do you get a GDP that is similar to that of Spain or Portugal. So that's the kind of, on average, level of Chinese industry or technology is that, is lower basically than the West. However, China is a much bigger country in terms of population than the US uh, or Europe. Well, yeah, also Europe, yeah. Um, twice the size of population of Europe. But, um, so, although each, on average, the, the productivity is lower, still the mass of uh, wealth created means that China is now approaching, not quite there yet, but approaching, the economy is the same, almost the same size as the US economy. So basically, and this obviously means something to world relations, right? It means something for world relations, the balance of world trade and so on. And this is not lost on the Europeans and the Americans, who basically are trying now to restrict further development from China. So that's a kind of attempt, basically, to hold China's development back. And what particularly provoked them, uh, provoked, maybe wrong word, but what particularly got them worried was the, le- the plan of, I've what it's called, it's the, uh, it's the industrial plan, it's called China 2023, 2025, what was it? Or something like that uh, it 's like the industrial plan, basically, which included China developing a uh, world class semiconductor industry, aerospace industry, and I think the third one i've forgotten uh, anyway, the three key kind of growth fields in the world economy, key important industries without implications for all kinds of other things, including military purposes of course so and this was a big warning sign then to the um, Americans and the Europeans who started thinking well, actually China might not just be this sort of uh, Country we can treat paternalistically and invest and get some profits from but actually this would become a serious contender Oh, 3G is the third um, Right, start to run out of time here I'm Turning into Fred Weston here <laughs> Fred always runs over. It's a law of nature. Um now the US remains however of course the superpower its military expenditure is more than more than twice that of China it's also more than all so if you have US are spending most on this military they are spending more on their military than the next 10 countries combined right, right. so the US remains supreme on a world scale we shouldn't forget that When it comes to a country country like Taiwan, obviously this question of the balance of power between the US and China has some rather important implications. Because Taiwan is the country for producing semiconductors, which are the component for every electronic device we have now. It's the only country, almost 92% of the smallest semiconductors of (coughs) 4 nanometers or less. Are produced in Taiwan, so if, for example, the U.S. were to embargo or U.S. were to embargo China, block China's access to these semiconductors, that would have tremendous imp- implications for Chinese industries and the military as well. Just like the U.S. had just done with, and U.S. and Europe have just done that to Russia. So U.S. and Russia now, uh, U.S. and Europe now sanctions any company that will sell semiconductors to Russia. And the Chinese government are looking at this and they're thinking, well, look, if they can do this to Russia, they can do it to us. Now, what does that mean for Taiwan? It means that it sharpens the struggle over this island, which is producing these semiconductors. Uh, who will be the ones that will be able to control economically or politically this island? Because this is where you get your semiconductors from, which is the key to everything. Uh, And so uh, this is what the context of uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was. It's also why the Chinese responded so strongly. Uh, There was a political element to that, you know, the need to sort of shore up your own uh, support and so on, but it's economically of crucial importance at this moment in time. And speaking of barriers to entry, the Chinese Uh, The Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company, which is this company that produces 92% of the smallest, their expansion plans over the next 10 years includes $100 billion worth of investment. So you can imagine the level of investment that is needed to maintain these kind of industries. Obviously both China now and the United States and Europe. They're all struggling now to build up their own semiconductor industries, their own chips manufacturing industries, in order not to be so reliant on Taiwan. Now, this is the end of globalization. Because you can no longer rely uh, on the uh, world trade, the world market, for the supplies of your own industries. For example, if China were to blockade Taiwan, which militarily, which it could very well do, it's got to capability to do that it's not far from the chinese coast um if it were to do that block the entire uh, european and u s industries from accessing these the semiconductors then the consequences would be tremendous for uh, the economies of Europe and the United States now it might never do that but the threat might be sufficient right so these uh these this then mean that not just for, so these countries don't feel like, wow, well, look, we've got to do something. China needs to feel like, well, we got to do something. Russia feels we've got to do something. So all of them need to produce or they build their own national industries. So you're destroying, basically rolling back on the world market. You can no longer rely on the world market. Every single company will be thinking the same thing. Intel will be thinking, well, look, we need to re we, uh, they had used to have their own chip plants. They're thinking, why well, We need to um, uh, build a, build, rebuild our, uh, we say, our uh, chip-making uh, productive capacity. And I think they've been given some sort of ten billion dollars or something from the American state in order to start this process. Uh, I think uh, the CEO of Intel spoke publicly about this, and he said. We should produce the entire supply chain, should be inside the borders of the United States. And that's what he said. Uh, I think it's utopia, they're never gonna achieve it, but uh, you get the gist of where they're trying to go. And all this will have consequences for the cost. Precisely what Adam Smith and Ricardo and others, economists are saying, also, you know, the neoliberal economists, as they call it. They all said, look, all that is happening if you introduce protectionist measures, it's gonna make everything more expensive. You're going to reduce the efficiency in the world economy, it's going to basically sink you, it's going to uh, lead to a depression or a collapse in the economy. And they all know this, it's not uh, rocket science, Uh, they all read the textbooks, at least most of them, not sure about this trust, but... Uh, or Donald Trump either, but, you know, they know this is taking place, but yet they cannot stop this process from taking place. That's also why we shouldn't conceive of free trade or protectionism as a policy, but it's part of a general process. And at the heart of this um, uh, crisis that's taking place in world relations and world trade lies the crisis of capitalism, that started in 2008. What position, so, and the consequences will be, Obviously, the other thing they're facing right now is the problem of inflation. And inflation, what's going to be the consequence of all this for inflation? Well, if everything, if all these key components in our products become more expensive, commodities become more expensive, uh, the th- consequence is going to have more and more inflation, more cost of living prices, more strikes in order to try to catch up, workers trying to catch up and keep their wages in line with inflation and so on. It's going to increase the instability on the world scale. What position do we take? Um, So, of course, historically, the market, the invisible hand, the free, you know, the world market, the invisible hand, and so on, they played a progressive role, they developed the productive forces and so on. But it's not a question, we can't just turn back the clock, right, arbitrarily, like liberals would like us to, just Right, let's just turn the clock back to 2006, or 1973, or 1968, or whatever. It's not how history works. You can't just turn the clock back because you would like to. Um, But we must understand this whole development of capitalism, post-war period. That whole period of expansion, of economic growth, and so on, that's come to an end. Really now, truly, finally. It was a bit of a hiccup in the 70s, now it's truly come to an end. And that means that all these things, all these sureties, all these uh, stability which the ruling class could rely on for decades is gone, finished. And with that also is the expansion of free trade, globalization and so on, and we have a return to protectionism uh, because of the instability that is in the system itself. And our role is to explain why this is taking place and the consequences it's going to have, and fundamentally How, uh, well, the one how free trade is actually very reason why we're here in the first place. Free trade led to the crisis, right? Protectionism will deepen it. Uh, That's the truth of it. Even if they were to introduce magically some free trade policy, it would just lead to another crisis anyway. Uh, Because free trade is not a solution to the problem. The problem is capitalism. And we are socialists, we're Marxists, we're revolutionaries, and we see in the collapse of globalization only another stage in the collapse of the capitalist system as a whole. And we see the great benefits of world trade, but that the, 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 tra- the, uh, the increase of world trade on the base of capitalism is finished. It's, no, it's not going to be revived uh, and that's, the under- that's it. Only on the basis of working class taking power can we re-establish world trade or, and world relations on a healthy basis. And this, of course, will then propel a leap, massive leap forward in development of production, development of human, uh, of material wealth in society, and development of humanity as a whole. But it only, can only be on the basis of the working class taking power, and uh, basically on the basis of the world socialist revolution. And that's what we're here for.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Marxist Voice. Thanks very much for listening. And before you go, just some quick announcements to make. As always, if you agree with what you heard in this discussion and you want to find out more about the ideas of Marxism and get organised in a revolutionary organisation, then I would encourage you to get involved with Socialist Appeal and the International Marxist Tendency. If you'd like to reach out to a group of Marxists near you, then we've got branches across the country and sections across the world. So by all means, please do get in touch with us using the link in the show notes of this podcast. And similarly, if you'd like to support our work by subscribing to our newspaper, our theoretical magazine, or donating to our organisation, then head to the link in the show notes of this podcast. And lastly... You might have heard that in Britain, there's going to be a big trade union mobilisation on February the 1st. Around about half a million workers are going to be going on strike from the education sector to the public sector and everywhere in between. This is perhaps one of the biggest trade union mobilisations that we've seen in Britain for decades. And it comes on top of a wide politicisation of the working class in response to the attacks of the bosses and years of Tory austerity. As Marxists, it's our job to support these struggles, but furthermore, to connect Marxist ideas with the struggles that are taking place. So, if you're not already involved with Socialist Appeal and you'd like to come along to these demonstrations with us, then by all means, reach out to us and find out how you can get involved. And with that, we'll bring this week's episode to a close and make sure you stay tuned for more weekly episodes covering Marxist theory, revolutionary history and current events. Thanks very much for listening to Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal.